Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of this day, for our lives, for our families, for our health, for this parish family, for your word, for your sacraments, most especially all of this given to us by you, loving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And we ask now that as we turn to the book of Revelation, you would illumine our hearts and minds to know you, to love you, and serve you. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, I don't have any slides for us this morning, mostly because that, y'all have heard the phrase, busy is a one-armed paper hanger thing was going on this week. So um, we will get through our content as we have done. This week we're going to look at chapters 8 and 9 in the book of Revelation. And um, we'll see a little bit this time in ways we haven't yet fully seen more direct connections between some of the um, uh, phrases and, and what was happening specifically at that time. So this is where things in the book begin to connect a little bit to specific um, points of persecution in the Roman Empire. So we'll say more about that as we go. So let's do a quick review. We know this book was written by the Apostle John when he was exiled on the island of Patmos. And we see an early pattern emerging in the book of visions of heaven, images of Jesus, and then action. So, for example, in chapters 1 through 3, it opened with an image of Jesus and then a vision of heaven. And then chapters 2 and 3 were the writing of the letters to the churches. Um, There were seven letters written to seven specific churches. They were more appropriately said congregations or parishes, right? They wouldn't have necessarily called themselves that at that point in time. But there's one church, right? One holy Catholic and apostolic church. So these letters were written to those congregations. Um, Those congregations were along a major route in Asia Minor. And likely not only would those letters have been read in those individual churches, but probably circulated. And certainly they're circulated now, right? Because we have the entire corpus of the book and of scripture itself. So then we come to chapters four and five. We have another image of Jesus, another vision of heaven. And this time the action is a response of worship. Then in 6 and 7, we have another image of Jesus, another vision of heaven. We have these seals, and and then those who are sealed, and then this talk about the tribulation that we got into last week. So as is our custom, I'm going to read us through chapters 8 and 9, and then we'll um, get into the the text itself. Um, Revelation chapter 8, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, so you remember the first six seals were opened in the last chapters, and now the seventh seal is being opened, again, a sign of completion. When the land opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of the saints on the golden altar before the throne. So again, there's, there's an image and an idea of the saints of the prayers going up into heaven, and more than just God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit being aware of those prayers, we, we see here in this context that these angelic beings are aware of those prayers. Carrying on in verse 4, And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth, and there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashings of lightning, and an earthquake. Now there's the image of God we all have in our mind, right? That he's throwing down lightning bolts and thunder. And when Alice worked for me for the last several years, she used to say, I'm going to stand over here because the lightning bolts that way will come at you and I'll be spared. So that was a little inner office joke that we had among us. 
And guess what? She was right. 99.9%, it's just that 0.01% that was a trouble. Anyway, uh, verse six. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood and these were thrown upon the earth and a third of the earth was burned up and a third of the trees were burned up and all green grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet and a great star fell from heaven blazing like a torch and it fell on a third of the rivers on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet and a third of the sun was struck and a third of the moon and a third of the stars so that a third of their light might be darkened and a third of the day might be kept from shining and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice. Now that word eagle has also been translated angel but scholarship generally says more appropriately eagle. Uh, Crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. Chapter 9. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or tree, but only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five, for, hurt people for five months is, let me try that again, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the altar of God before God, sorry, heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. 
The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. And you have to ask the question, why in the world not, (laughs) right? With all of this calamity and chaos going on and the wrath of God being visited upon the earth, how in the world could you see that happening and not repent? Then again, we can ask ourselves that very same question right now, can't we? Okay, um, so we'll, we'll hopefully be able to be a little bit more interactive today. There is yet still a lot of material to cover, um, so I'm just going to start talking, and if you have a question or comment, feel free to raise your hand. I can't promise that you that I will necessarily be able to answer it here, um, but if I can't, I will certainly try to get back to you with an answer that's reasonable and truthful and hopefully timely. Okay, so let's talk about the beginning of chapter 8. Again, we see this opening of the seventh seal that takes place. Again, that's a sign of completion. Seven is a number of perfection. So the perfection of the opening of these seven seals is taking place. And then we have this period of silence and this blowing of six of seven trumpets. Again, uh, an incomplete blowing of the trumpets, if you will. And the unrepentant continue in their immorality. So the opening of the seventh seal is the completion of the first dispensation of judgment, right? Those seals represent uh, judgment that God is, is meeting out upon the earth. And that end of that uh, dispensation ends with the prayer of saints in a period of silence. We would expect that to be a natural kind of response, right? After God issues judgment, um, the faithful respond in prayer. Like we saw earlier, the prayers of the martyrs. How long, O Lord, will this happen? Um, So we see the prayers of the saints in this period of silence, and yet more judgment is about to come. Then we get into the transition from the opening of the seventh seal, the completion of the dispensation of the judgments, this period of silence, and we hear God and the angels hearing and attending to the prayers of the saints. And this period of silence anticipates God's next move. What is God going to do next? Well, in a sense, he's going to do exactly what we hope he would do and expect he would do, which is to continue to act justly, right? God is going to continue to exercise justice on the earth because he is a just God. And the justice that he exercises is going to look like judgment against those who refuse his love, his grace, and his mercy. That's what we see at the back end of chapter 9, right? They see all of this just judgment of God happening, and yet they continue to live an unrepentant life. So... um, We've talked about the prayers of the saints. We see that also in chapter 5, verse 8. And in that place, heaven responds with worship. Now in this chapter, God responds with more judgment. So what precedes this dispensation of judgment is is the announcement of judgment, if you will, that comes through thunder and lightning and earthquake. God is doing something dramatic. He's doing something severe. He's doing something noticeable upon the earth, right? This just judgment is transcending the heavens into the earth and As John describes it, it looks like thunder and lightning and earthquake because it probably does. (laughs) And then we get to the seven trumpets of judgments that come out. And they come out for uh, judgment against those who have been persecuting the faithful. 
And that's where we'll begin to see not just this general idea of God's just judgment against those who are persecuting the faithful, but as I said earlier, a little bit contextually, we're going to see some of this imagery um, speak specifically to the period of time in which the early Christians were being persecuted by the Roman Empire. So let's go into that, and I'll pause for just a second. Any questions or comments or reflections as we make that transition? So far, so good. Well, I mean, maybe not good, <laughs> but true, right? Okay. So these trumpets, as we get to the introduction of the trumpets, they predict this sort of eschatological, if you will, judgment, the fulfillment of God's judgment. Um, We saw the comparison between the seals and the trumpets. The seals culminate in the worship of the redeemed. The trumpets culminate in the activity of the unrepentant. So there's this contrast, there's this parallelism going on in this contrast, right? As the seals are open, the, the just worship God as the trumpets are open, the unjust continue in unrepentance. So there's a comparison and contrast going there. Now, as we get into the trumpets and the plagues themselves, we're going to see that it looks a lot like the book of what? Old Testament Exodus, right? There's imagery of the Old Testament and Exodus going on with the blowing of these trumpets and these plagues that are beginning to happen. And what John is saying, and this is where it becomes contextual to the persecution of the early Christians, is that Rome is treating the Christians like the Egyptians were treating the Israelites. That's what he's saying, right? All of the suffering that the Israelites endured and then the just judgment of God that came through the plagues Now Rome is doing the same thing, and so we're going to see the just judgment of God coming through these trumpets, which are going to be similar types of plagues. And to take that and and put it in another layer, what was local, if you will, and specific under the old covenant is now global under the new covenant, right? We are from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, so we're seeing the expansion of the kingdom of God in that sense. So these trumpets also serve another purpose. They prefigure and, and they parallel these bowls, uh, these bowls that we will see later in, in Revelation chapter 16. So we've got seals, then we've got trumpets, and then we've got bowls. And another important aspect of this is, is this is the last limited persecution that we're going to see um, in the book of Revelation, which also, again, gives a little bit of context that he's talking specifically here about what those Christians who are receiving those letters are experiencing under the persecution of the Roman Empire. So this coded language, they would have understood, right? If you know your Old Testament, then those churches who received these letters and these warnings along, um, along the road in, in Asia Minor, okay, I get it. You know, Rome is treating us like the Egyptians treated the Israelites. So let's talk about them, and the way I want to talk about them is the trumpets kind of paralleling. Yes? Right. Correct. Um, I, I, think, I think we have to say, honestly, both, right? He's talking about Rome persecuting those Christians, Jews who'd become Christian, Gentiles and Jews who'd become Christian at that period in time. But yes, Rome is obviously symbolic of, of 
um, a, a, a more global evil that is inhabiting the world. Um, and, and they would have seen it that way too, right? Rome was the empire of the earth to be reckoned with at that time. So, so yes, both and. Good question. Good question. Okay, so let's talk about the first trumpet. The first angel blows his trumpet in chapter 8, verse 7. That trumpet contains hail. It contains fire. So we're going to talk about this in terms of content and effect, right? What's the content of, of, the, of the plague or the trumpet, and what's the effect of it? So the content is the hail, the fire, the blood fall on the earth, and the effect of that is that a third of the earth, the trees, and all of the grass are burned up. So again, it's, it's limited in scope, right? This has parallel with Exodus and the seventh plague. If you're taking notes, it's Exodus chapter 9. Um, the content of that plague was hail, and the effect of that plague was that the slaves and the livestock of the faithful, meaning the Israelites, took shelter, but the slaves and the livestock of the unfaithful were left in the fields. So not a direct parallel per se in terms of the, of the effect of that, other than, other than there's this um, th things being affected, but the content is similar in that it's hail visited upon the earth. So again, the imagery holds for the church of the New Testament, understanding this is a plague like unto the plagues of the Old Testament. The second trumpet, its content is there's this great mountain that's burning with this fire that's thrown into the sea. The effect of that trumpet is that a third of the sea becomes blood, a third of the living creatures died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. So what's starting to be affected here? Not just the created order, but specifically what? If the ships are being destroyed, what's happening? Commerce, economic trade, right? Not dissimilarly then, this second trumpet, trumpet parallels the first plague uh, of Exodus chapter 7. Its content is the water is turned into blood and the effect of it is the fish die, the water will stink and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking it. So similarly, sustenance, right? And, and commerce, I mean, fishing's obviously a big deal on the Nile and in Egypt. Then we have this third trumpet. The content of it is this star named Wormwood that fell from heaven. John stole that from C.S. Lewis, didn't he? Or was it the other way around? Okay. Uh, you've got this star named Wormwood that falls from heaven, uh, blazing like a torch. It falls on third of the rivers and of the springs. And the effect of it is that many people died because of the bitterness of the water. Now, that doesn't directly tie into a plague of the Old Testament per se, as they were listed um, in, in, in the plagues uh, against Pharaoh, but it does have um, a, a parallelism with the bitter waters at Meribah in Exodus chapter 15, where the water was made bitter, and the effect of it was the people could not drink of it, and so they grumbled against God. So then we have a fourth trumpet. The content of it is a third of the sun and the moon and the stars are all struck. The effect of it is that a third of their light is darkened. A third of the day is kept from shining. A third of the night is kept from shining. Similar to the ninth plague in Exodus 10 where all of the water of the Nile is... Oh, I missed that one. My apology. Let me see if I can backtrack that. I cannot. I obviously copied the wrong thing because we already did the ninth plague. It is X, but I did think, I do think I got the chapter right. So Exodus chapter 10, let me go find that. Say again. Yep, that's what I have written down. Everybody make a note. Father Chris made a clerical error. 
A partial, a partial clerical error. Partial clerical error. Sorry, groans are appropriate here. Okay, so it is the, um, we'll read this plague of darkness, which is the ninth plague. So some, I did make a clerical error. I just, now I'm going to have to go back and identify specifically what it is. But it does relate to Exodus chapter 10, verse 21, which is the ninth plague, where the Lord says to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. There was pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did any, anyone rise from his place for three days. But all of the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones may also go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind. For we must take of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know with, we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me, take care never to see my face again, for on the day you see my face you shall die. Moses said, as you say, I will not see your face again. So there's the, the content and the effect of the ninth plague from Exodus chapter 10, which again has parallels with this fourth trumpet of the third of the sun and the moon and the stars are struck. Their light is darkened and it's kept from shining. So then we come to this interlude, which again has been translated in, in, in verse 13 as either an eagle or an angel. Again, most scholarship now would suggest eagle. Um, still something, if you will, flying through the air that appears and cries out three woes that are coming from these last three trumpets. And we won't see all of the woes because we're only going to see two of the trumpets in this last chapter, but we'll go ahead and get into it here. So we turn to chapter 9 and we see this fifth trumpet we see that this angel has fallen from heaven. Um, this fallen angel is named Satan. He's given, this, this fallen angel is Satan. He's given the key to the bottomless pit, which we know to be hell. The effect of this is that this, um, this open shaft, uh, the shaft is open in the pit. The smoke like a great furnace rises and it darkens the sun and the earth and locusts come from the smoke given the power of the scorpions. So this pair, I'm going to say more about that in just a minute, but this um, parallels the eighth plague of Exodus chapter 10, verses 1 through 20, where a swarm of locusts is released. Uh, these locusts, they cover the face of the land. No one can see the land because of their swarm, and they eat what is left, and eat every, the locusts are going to eat every tree of the field, unlike Revelation, and they're supposed to fill all of their houses and their servants and all of the Egyptians, the locusts, that is. They're going to swarm everywhere and take over everything. So there's the parallel between the, that trumpet and the eighth plague. So let's dive deeper into this trumpet because there's more symbolism going on here that's going to help us. But before I do, any questions or comments about that part? Yes, Jim. The one-third, sure. It's simply meant to say that it's substantial but limited, right? It's, it's a lot, but it's still limited. It's not cataclysmic for the whole earth. It is a just judgment, and, and the deeper symbolism also would be, again, as I said, because this is talking, at least in part, about the persecution of the Roman Empire. There's, there's a limited scope for, for that as well, right? Okay, so... 
we've got this star, and if, and if we understand our symbolism from Revelation, stars represent angels. It falls from heaven. Satan is the fallen angel. He's given the key to this bottomless pit, which we know to be hell. If we look at Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, we see that Satan is also identified as the prince of the air. And when we talk about him being the prince of the air in, in biblical symbolism, in a sense we're saying that he's, he's in no man's land, right? He's neither in heaven nor is he on the earth. He's, he's in the air. He's suspended. He has power, but his power is contained and it's limited. Now, it can wreak havoc upon the earth as it does, but it's, it's, he's, he's sort of bound in, in nowheresville. And, and of course, we know that especially because of the victory on the cross. So Satan is the prince of the air, um, and he cannot harm those who have the seal of God upon their forehead, but there is this demonic plague that's issued against those who oppose God. They will torment for five months with the sting of the scorpion, but they will not kill. The people will seek death, but they will not find it, and these locusts that are prepared for battle. So let's go deeper into the symbolism about these locusts. If you go back to the prophet Joel, Joel talks about these natural catastrophes that happen on the earth are like a swarm of locusts. That's the imagery that Joel uses because they can be a great plague that cause a lot of natural catastrophe. In the book of Revelation, however, these locusts have heads that are, are crowned with gold. So there's an um, understanding then from that that they have a sense of dominion on the earth. Their faces are like humans, which means there's a level of intelligence about them. So what are we talking about? Demons, right? We're talking about demons, fallen angels along with Satan, who, who as they wreak havoc upon the earth, look like a swarm of locusts. Their hair is like a woman's, their teeth is like a lion's. So there's some imagery here that um, would have tied to constellations that would have been seen in the sky. And those constellations specifically would have been seen in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. Hair like a woman's might represent the constellation Virgo, the maiden virgin. Teeth like a lion's might represent the constellation Leo. Sagittarius would have been a warrior constellation. Hydra would have been serpent monster. All of these would have been seen in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover, but they also would have been seen at the time of the Roman invasion in Jerusalem. So as Rome goes out to conquer Jerusalem in the aftermath of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven, as they storm into Rome and eventually destroy the temple, there are signs of these things happening. And so it's interesting that John is using these constellation-like images to talk about this time of destruction, which again, would likely have tied it to the events of the destruction of um, Jerusalem. Now, there's a little bit of writing in the aftermath going on, right? Because this book was written after the destruction of Jerusalem. So a little bit of what John is saying is that's what you saw. When you saw that happen, that's what was going on, right? So they have these breastplates of iron, these noise of wing like chariots of horses in battle, their tails with stings like scorpion with the power to hurt for five months. So five months is symbolizing a short amount of time. Five months, interestingly, is also the life cycle of locusts. So there's, a, there's kind of a naturalism uh, interplay going on there. And the Roman siege of Jerusalem lasted for about five months. So there's the symbolism that's happening there that, that allows scholarship today to say, we believe he's talking specifically about the conquest of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. 
Their king is the angel of the bottomless pit. The name of the angel is Abaddon in Hebrew or Apollyon in Greek. So that name itself in, in those two languages means destruction. Interestingly, the leader of the Roman army, his name was Titus. He was the leader of the 15th legion of the Roman army, which was named Apollinarius, which has the same root as Apollyon. And Titus was the one who destroyed the temple. Therefore, these things seem to be a specific coded reference to the destruction of Jerusalem, which, as I said, had already happened. Helpful? <laughs> a lot of furrowed brows going on here. Bill. So we know, uh, we know John was exiled in the 90s, so some, sometime in that time frame, so about 20 years after the destruction of Jerusalem. So in a sense, again, he's looking in hindsight a little bit and saying, this is what happened. And he's writing in a code because he's writing to a church that's being persecuted, so he's giving them cryptic language to help them interpret what's happening, not just in the natural sense, but in a supernatural sense. Good question. It's good. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 6, and this is where um, these things really come home to, to bear for us. My little alarm announcement that I have 10 minutes left. Ephesians chapter 6, and I've, I've preached upon this, as you said, a lot recently. Beginning at verse 10, everybody with me? Paul writes, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So he's talking about the victory of Jesus over the cross, right? Put on the whole armor of God, so he's using natural imagery here to talk about supernatural ideas, that you may be able to stand against the scheme of the devil. So this is where this all comes to bear. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Again, what's he saying? Every human being is made in the image of God. And though they may oppose us for our belief in Christ, they are not our enemy, right? They, they have allowed their minds to come into the bondage of the devil and, and, and allowed them to become subservient to the, to the wicked thoughts and therefore the wicked ways. I was talking to a lady the other day who has struggled to believe in the devil her whole life. She believes in God. She loves Jesus but she said she's always struggled with believing in the devil. Why? <laughs> Can you not see the lawlessness that's going on around you, right? What's, what's the biggest lie that the devil would want us to believe? That he doesn't exist, right? If he can get us there, then all kinds of things open up in our minds that are unhelpful, unhelpful to us, right? This is chaos, God's not in control, it doesn't matter, I don't matter, right? Those are the places people go when they buy into those lies. So take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and have done all to stand firm. Let's see. Yep, I need to keep going because I have eight minutes left. So now uh, Revelation says in chapter nine, verse 12, that this, first, this is the end of the first woe and behold, there are two woes still to come. So the end of this woe, again, seems to localize this persecution to the Roman conquest of Israel and the collapse and the conquer of the temple. Now we have this sixth um, trumpet that takes place. It's a release of the four angels. They come from the altar of God. They are bound at the Euphrates. Why might that be important? Where's the Euphrates? Old Testament, right? It's a boundary. 
Say again? Ba- ba- Old Testament Babylon, even before that, right? We find the Euphrates in, in Genesis. But we can also say that the Euphrates is, a, is an Eastern type of boundary for the Roman Empire. So there's an interesting symbolism going on here. So these angels come from the altar of God. They're bound at the Euphrates. They come in response to the prayers of the saints. So similarly as the martyrs had prayed, how long, how Lord, how long? And he unleashes the seals. Now there's a sense of similarity, how long, O Lord, and, and the trumpets are blown. So these are response to the prayers of the saints. They are emblematic of Genesis. So in a sense, we're going all the way back to the beginning and, and, and as God is releasing his just judgment in the world at this point in time, and in a sense at all points in time, he's restoring things to the created order. So it's the beginning of the fixing of things since the fall, but it's also a symbolism, as I said, of the boundary of the Roman Empire. You have these mounted troops that are twice 10,000 times 10,000, a whole lot. <laughs> they have breastplates with color of fire and sapphire and sulfur. Their heads are like lions with fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. They have power in their mouths and in their tails. Their tails are like serpents with ha- that have heads to, and the power to wound. And the effect of them is they kill a third of mankind. Again, this is the last limited plague that we'll see in Revelation. But again, it may be limited because it may be contextual to the destruction of the Jerusalem and the persecution of the early apostolic church. As we said already, the rest of mankind who were not killed did not repent. They kept on worshiping the demons, the idols of gold, silver, bronze, wood that cannot see, hear, or walk. They did not repent of their murders, their sorceries, their sexual immorality, and their theft. And that gets us to the end with six whole minutes to spare. That may be the quickest one we've ever done. So any question or comment um, before we break for coffee, which I need? Yes. Well, in a sense, yes, sure. I mean, those who are witnessing the destruction of the third, the the majority, like, wake up, pay attention, repent, right? Return to the Lord. Absolutely. That's it? All right. Oh, Christine. Yeah. That's right. Just like we saw the, the protection of the oil and wine, right, as a sacramental imagery last week, now we see a protection of the covenant, if you will, because God's covenant and chosen and elect will, will persevere through this, right? The ones who've taken his seal on their forehead, which, yes, Chiquita, possibly, plausibly, seemingly. Could the four angels be the ones who are guarding the Garden of Eden? I mean, there's certainly, in tying into the river Euphrates, a type of symbolism there, Right. And, and let me, and I'll, I'll make, I wasn't going to make this point, but I'll make it because that's important to the stripe of conversation. I have heard people, and you all have probably heard people too, who take these images of these locusts and these scorpions and these tails, and they interpret them as helicopters and planes and, and things like that. It's true, right? It's, it's, in a sense, biblical fear-mongering. Now, those things happened, but he's talking about the persecution of the church in the early Roman Empire, are, are warplanes and helicopters uh, frightening things? They, they can be, but the point, as Andrew said, is not to frighten us, it's to prepare us and to warn us to repent and return to the Lord. So, a good word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the gift of your word that does comfort us. It challenges us, but it guides us and it encourages us that, that when we take that seal of baptism, uh, we have the Holy Spirit who is the deposit of our 
inheritance. And we need not live in fear um, because you, you compel us to live by faith, faith in your victory that spurs us on to victory in you. So we thank you for that, and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.